It's the Growing for Market podcast. Employees, people who come here often complain that there's that the aisles are really small. Okay, our pathways are really small, and I have to remind them, the employees, that there's no money in the aisle. <laughs> so you know we plant tight. Everything here is is pretty tight, and use all of your space. Use all of your space. Use the, you know, your land. Anything here can be cut. Anything planted here, mostly, can be cut. Hello, and welcome to the Growing for Market podcast, where we talk about growing, marketing, and the business of growing vegetables and flowers for local markets like farmers markets, CSAs, farm stands, and local wholesaling. I'm Andrew Mefford, your host and the editor of Growing for Market magazine. For 32 years, the magazine for flower and vegetable market farmers. If you're enjoying the podcast, just wait till you see the magazine. Go to growingformarket.com for more. Also, if you could give us a follow and a rating, it really helps other like-minded people find the podcast. And now let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. It's with their generous support that we can bring you the podcast for free. Today's episode of the Growing for Market podcast is brought to you by BCS America. On our farm, we've had our BCS two-wheel tractor for over a decade, and with no belts to slip, its all-gear-driven construction is still going strong. Though we originally got it for rototilling, we kept it even when we went mostly no-till, because it can do so many other things around the farm. From snow blowing to making raised beds with a rotary plow, to chipping wood, it can do just about anything you might need on a farm with the right attachment. Need to shred a cover crop? A BCS flail mower will make quick work of even the most vigorous cover crop and chop it up so it breaks down quickly. Want to stir in compost or amendments without inverting soil layers? A power harrow turns your BCS into a precise tilting machine with depth control so you don't mix deeper than you want to. With so many attachments to choose from, it truly is the Swiss Army knife of farm implements. It's why, instead of saying two-wheel tractor, so many people just say BCS. Tractors and attachments are on sale through the end of the year. Visit bcsamerica.com to find sale pricing and your nearest dealer. Every fall on our farm, we order a couple sling bags of Fort V potting soil from Vermont Compost. Over the years, we've tried a lot of the compost and potting soil options out there, from making our own to buying off the shelf. And we keep coming back to Vermont Compost, both for overall quality and batch-to-batch consistency. It's that consistency that keeps us coming back. There are so many variables that affect how good your seedlings are. We know Vermont compost will give our plants the best possible foundation so we can stick to worrying about all the other stuff and not the potting soil. Each fall, Vermont compost offers a pre-buy program to incentivize ordering your spring soil before the snow flies. You can receive 20% off orders placed, paid for, and shipped by October 31st. Listeners of the Growing for Market podcast will also receive a free 60-quart bag of Compost Plus container and transplant booster mix with your order. Visit vermontcompost.com GFM for more details or mention this podcast when you place your order. This week, we have the pleasure of welcoming Mima Davis and Miranda Dushek of Urban Buds City Grown Flowers to the podcast. I, for one, am super excited to have them on today, as I've been reading about their farm in places like Growing for Market Magazine and the ASCFG Cut Flower Quarterly for years. This is one of the really fun parts of the podcast, getting to talk with people like yourselves, who I may have been reading about and learning from for years, but never had a chance to meet in person. 
In fact, there is a tour of Urban Buds as a part of the upcoming ASCFG conference in St. Louis in November that I definitely would have gone on if I could have gotten to the conference. But if you're not familiar with Urban Buds, they grow flowers in South St. Louis, Missouri, about seven miles south of the famous St. Louis Gateway Arch. They bought part of a historic farm property in 2012, including a glass greenhouse and a florist shop, and have been growing flowers there and rehabbing the property ever since. Though urban agriculture is as old as cities are, they were one of the first examples I was aware of with people growing and selling flowers in the city. Though I feel like I am hearing about more and more examples all the time from people growing on city lots to urban rooftops. In fact, we had Joanna Letts of Bluma Flower Farm, who grows on rooftops in Berkeley, California, earlier this year. We'll put a link to that pod in the show notes. Farming in the city or suburbs does sound like a great way to grow close to a lot of customers. So today we're going to dig into what it's really like to be a farmer florist in the city. So without further ado, welcome Mima and Miranda. Hi, Andrew. Yeah, well, we're excited to be here completely. Have this conversation with you. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, well, thanks so much for uh, making the time. I'm sure it's a busy time, as most are, but especially uh, this fall for farmers. Before we get into what you're doing these days, you both have interesting backgrounds. Mima, I know you work with Cooperative Extension, and you are also the vice president going into your third term of the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, or ASCFG, which, if people aren't familiar with it, is a great organization for cut flower growers to get involved with. They have a lot of information and connections for direct market cut flower farmers. I also know that before Urban Buds, you operated Wild Thang Farms in Ashland, Missouri, which was the largest cut flower farm in the state at the time. So... I want to ask you what it was like to go from a larger farm to a smaller one in the city. And I want to make sure not to diminish the size of the operation. I feel like small is big these days, which is a relief because between the USDA's past exhortations to get bigger, get out, I think a lot of times the natural reflex is for people to think that to grow more, they need a bigger farm footprint. It's a refreshing reality that people are succeeding in downsizing and equaling the revenue of larger farming footprints by intensifying instead of expanding in size. In fact, we have a couple podcasts with guests who have done just that, including Eli Wheat last week, and we'll have Ben Hartman talking about doing the same thing in November. So what was it like to move from a larger farm to a smaller urban farm? property, Mima? Well, I think it's really individual, but for me, wow, it was a real game changer because I was already coming into St. Louis to do all my sales. I was coming into St. Louis twice a week. That's driving two hours one way before I ever even sold the product. Okay. It's leaving the farm, you know, as a lot of farmers do, leaving the farm at four o'clock in the morning to make it to a eight o'clock in the morning farmer's market. It was just, you know, and at that time I was really doing it on my own. I was, I was like loading up a vehicle, having workers there during the day while I'm on a truck. And that just wasn't a very sustainable lifestyle for me. It was a, a path to fast burnout for me. So being in the city took all of that away finding this farm here in the city 
And we'll talk more about that, the advantages of actually being in the city with Miranda. And yeah, that's, it's a big difference. You know, you have your cultural activities, you have a more social life, you're able to have more access to medical care. I'm kind of a foodie and I I like fine dining, good food, farm food. So all that has a lot more accessibility here in the city. Yeah, absolutely. Were you able to keep your markets? I mean, was it just like, hey, people who are already buying our flowers, we just have a new location? Because I imagine there was a bit of a, a transition. I know I heard, sounds like there's quite a bit of rehab that needed to be done on the property. So I, I can imagine, were you able to transition and keep your customers or have your markets changed a lot with the farm change? It wasn't a direct, um, I didn't leave Wild Thing Farms and come directly to, to Urban Buds. I left farming. I went and got my master's, came back and worked for the Lincoln University Extension. And now currently I've been a full-time farmer since seven years. I left Extension Extension, and I've been a full-time farmer for the last seven years again. So there was a gap. There was a gap, a lot of years gap. Don't know exactly what that gap is. She stopped farming around 2003. Yeah. And we met in Cooperative Extension in 2010. We bought the property in 2012. Okay. All right. I didn't realize there was a gap. Thank you for that timeline. But what's interesting enough, when Miranda and I were thinking about farming together, and she was really unsure about this whole business idea of mine, I went around, back. I took Miranda around, to meet our florist customers, the florist that I used to sell to. And they were like, oh man, we can't wait for you to come back. We can't wait for you to come back. And today um, we do the Tower Grove Farmer's Market. And 20 years ago, I was doing the Clayton Farmer's Market in Clayton, Missouri. And my Clayton customers have found me at Tower Grove. So some of my customers are over 20 years old. And so with this incarnation of this business, Urban Buds, we built upon the Wild Thing business model. Mm -hmm. So it really put us up ahead. And I, as a beginning commercial grower, I had been having garden projects, farming projects for about 10 years at that time, but I'd never been a farm owner. And so it was advantageous to me and exciting to me to partner with Mima, who could serve in lots of capacities, but also as a professional teacher, dare I say mentor, but that we could take this business model, sort of tweak it to what we had going on in the city. And I mean, yeah, it was different to go from rural to urban, but um, kind of the bones of what we were doing was there. And it still is to that day. We mm. we talk about that a lot when we when we teach business classes is that we really use that business model as a way to keep us focused, you know, eyes on the prize. No, we don't want to sell wheatgrass. No, we're not going to do CBD propagative starts. No, no, we're not going to even do edible flowers. Yeah. Or wreaths. Yeah. We're not really into doing wreaths. So it's like farmer's market's really big for us. Right. And then event design and wholesale. Okay. Well, I think that's a really important point in itself because I feel like some people think of farms as a very static thing. And I think you might find some people who grow the same crops and follow the same business model for decades. But then 
most farms that I'm aware of are in flux, changing crops, maybe changing, even changing locations, business plans and things like that. So I think that's really important because our farm has changed locations. I've scaled back in, in order to run Growing for Market to the point where my wife is the main one. She has a business called Seedlings by Annie that she runs on our farm right now because GFM gets most of my time. And so, you know, I, th- I think that's just a really important thing to understand that that you got to you got to change with the times. OK, so, Miranda, I did want to ask you, I know you are also a small farm specialist for the Lincoln University of Missouri Co- Cooperative Extension, which sounds like that's where you guys met. How do you split your time between Cooperative Extension and the farm? And can you tell us a bit about the work you do with Cooperative Extension? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, I work for Lincoln University Cooperative Extension. Lincoln is based in Jefferson City, Missouri. It's an 1890 land-grant institution and historically Black college and university. So Lincoln has this really amazing college of agriculture that's doing research on organic farms in Jefferson City, lots of specialty crop production, and focused on limited resource, historically underserved, socially disadvantaged farmers. So, you know, me, uh, Mima, (laughs) our friends, (laughs) and then also, but community members. I've been in that role now, will be 13 years this October, and we have really seen urban farming grow and not only the work with mm-hmm. like Earth Dance Organic Farm School, New Roots Urban Farms, Urban Buds, kind of these farms that got started in like 2008, 2009, 2011. We see that this movement is very strong in St. Louis. So I love that work. It's outreach work. It's talking about SARE grants and the Farm Service Agency, which is a little less exciting. I get why people don't like policy. So, and then just helping farmers. So essentially I'm paid for by the state of Missouri to offer consultations at no charge to the residents of the state of Missouri in St. Louis City, St. Louis County. So I just come out, look at their production and give them advice, maybe help them write grants or whatever it is. So that's my professional job. And then with Urban Buds, really what changed the game changer for Urban Buds was becoming a mom. So in the first five years of the business, Mima and I were working side by side every single day for hours, but having kids really just change that whole world. So my schedule now on the farm is like Mondays, Fridays, Saturdays helping with market, Sundays helping with watering. So, I mean, there are periods of time, I think I went seven weeks working seven days this spring. So it's not great, Andrew. Yeah. This is the um, part, you know, the hard part of farming. And as I, as the further along we get into the business, you know, the less I actually get my hands dirty. And that's sad to me, but our employees get to and Mima get to. <laughs> so that's good. Well, th- that's an important reality to talk about, too, because I know before we had our kids, we thought just like, oh, we'll just do all the things that we did before just with a baby in a backpack. And so, in fact, my podcast co-host, whose name is Katie Kula, who farms out in Oregon, in fact, before she was the co-host, we did a couple episodes talking about how to balance farming and parenting because it's it's really hard to strike that balance so i think that's an important reality to hear about too yeah i i think we could you know write a book write articles about it because you know there's different models i know one flower farmer will hire moms with young kids and then on the farm they have a space where they bring in a nanny every day 
And that's a really creative solution, right? So there's maybe like an on-farm almost daycare, but to be continued, we kind of get into farming. Mima and I knew we weren't going to homeschool, but there's still a big chunk of time before they can get into school where they are demanding. And I don't think you really, really get it until you live it. Yeah, that's that's what we found. In fact, Katie actually just she wrote a book which is forthcoming from story publishers about farming and, and parenting. In fact, what she, one of, I think one of the things she did, so she wrote a couple articles, I think actually a series of three articles, one about sort of like getting ready for a, a child on the farm, one about once they've arrived and so I think she more or less expanded on that idea. So she has a book coming out about farming and parenting, which I just mentioned because you say there could be a book, like there will be a book here shortly, although- That's great. Oh my gosh, that was not planned, listeners. Not planned, listeners. That was an organic segue. Yeah, thank you. It was a great segue. I'd be remiss to mention that she has a book coming out. That said, the most interesting thing to me for the articles, because the the book hasn't even come out yet. I've I've read her articles, of course, because they were in the magazine, but I haven't seen the book. But the most interesting thing to me was to see how different people did it. Yeah. Some people traded with CSA members, childcare and and things like that. So that's one thing to to keep an eye out for. One other thing, Miranda, I wanted to ask you about, I I know it, it says that you're a fourth generation beekeeper and that you have, at this point, you have 20 years of experience working in agriculture. Can you tell us a bit about the beekeeping background and what you did before co-founding Urban Buds? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in rural Dane County near Madison, Wisconsin, a place called Sun Prairie. And my came from farming stock on my dad's side. My parents weren't farmers, but we were on two acres surrounded by farms and marshland. And my parents had Dushak's honey, how sweet it is. And so they had a hobby beekeeping business. So early, early memories are of my dad in his bee suit and selling at farmer's market. And one very horrible Miranda day when I knocked over the table of glass jars at farmer's market. It was terrible. I was four or five. And I remember that day. But for the most part, happy memories, of course. And so, yeah. I knocked over the table of honey jars that were glass. (laughs) Yeah, they broke. It was terrible. So that's what at market, I'm kind of stickler for plastic bottles or being really careful with the glass now. So, (laughs) but I just was one of those kids really, Andrew, that like, I love being outside. I loved like Anne of Green Gables and Caddy Woodlawn and Oregon Trail and all these things. And I just knew I couldn't be in an office working on a computer all day. And really I wanted to learn about sustainable farming. So I kind of got into like urban agrarianism and Wendell Berry and intentional communities. And so I would live in intentional communities in my 20s. We'd usually do like hospitality for formerly homeless people. I was involved with something called the Catholic Worker Movement. So we'd have rural communities, urban communities, but like usually soup kitchens, living with homeless women and children, people with drug addiction, undocumented folks, things like that, people in need. And then during the day to get money, I would work on farms. So I did like a goat dairy, prairie fruits farms, if your listeners have heard of that one in Champaign, Illinois. I'm very proud of that company. So done, yeah, various things. Worked at a convent for nuns for three years doing their orchards. I've done turkeys and chickens and things like that. And The reason I'm doing flowers now is because of Mima Davis. And 
you know, when I started, I was like, oh, flowers, how bougie can we get, you know? <laughs> like, but as I learned more about how flowers are grown and the role that flowers have in our lives, like they're with us, you know, during birth, death, courtship, like they're important and they're not going away. And because they're not going away and they're important, yeah. they need to be grown sustainably. And I just learned how dirty the, the imported flower industry can be. And so I have to have like really belief in what I'm doing. If you're going to, if you're going to have this kind of lifestyle, like you got to think it's a mission, man. So it was able, I was able to get behind the idea of what we're doing here for the environment, for our bodies and the community. Yeah. So beekeeping now, you know, beekeeping goes in spurts. Um, we don't, I don't have bees on the farm right now. And Mima can explain why. I found that when we have bees on the farm, the bees would pollinate the flowers and we're all about pollinators for sure, but it really takes down the flowers a lot faster. So it really decimates flowers a lot faster than without the, I mean, we still have the bees and we, we encourage pollinators, but we're just not keeping bees right now. Right. Well, yeah, I imagine, I mean, the population of bees must be so much more dense when you actually have hives around. And am I correct that it, the flowers go down faster when they're pollinated? Is that because it starts putting its energy into the seeds and lets the flowers senesce? Or, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but basically they forget about the flowers and start paying attention to the seeds. That's exactly it. Well, I know you started telling me a minute ago that farmer's markets were really important to you. Can you round out that picture of basically where do all your flowers go? What are your markets? Yeah. Okay. So our markets, it's interesting since COVID, COVID kind of shift the earth's access for everybody, I think. And before COVID, we were selling wholesale to florists and doing a farmer's market and a few weddings and events. And then COVID happened and we started a program called Petals Off of Our Porch. It was a contactless pickup and that just boomed. That was very successful. You know, people were at home, they were isolated, they couldn't go to movies, they couldn't go to dinner, they couldn't travel and they had income and they were freaked out. And so flowers became a great way you know, as they picked up groceries, they could, you know, order online and pick up a bucket of flowers, a bouquet, and it really helped them. I mean, we kept getting notes in the return buckets and gift cards and, oh, thank you so much. You really helped us get through COVID. And that really expanded our farmer's market. That really increased our customer base during COVID. So much so that we were running out at farmer's market while selling to wholesale. There was just something wrong with that picture. So we stopped our wholesale, we stopped selling to florists and we started doing the Tower Grove Farmer's Market, which is a, a fairly large market. Every Saturday we do two markets on the weekends. We do one at Tower Grove Park and one at the Boulevard, both under the umbrella of the Tower Grove Park. And so we do those two markets and then we um, just recently started a daily delivery service where people can order a bouquet online and have it delivered. And that's going very well for us. And it's it like, it's one of those things like, why haven't we done this? We've been here for 11 years now. Why is this just now a reality for us? Like, why weren't we doing this all along? Because it, it, it's really great. We're really enjoying doing it. 
and we've recently entered into a partnership. I personally don't like doing weddings. I really, although I like the flowers to be in the weddings and people want our flowers for their weddings. So we have collaborated with another florist called Wildflowers here in St. Louis so that she buys our flowers and then does our weddings so that we can still offer weddings with Urban Buds flowers. Yeah, weddings are quite a production. I feel like you got to really love doing it to not burn out on weddings. So I'm glad you found. So is it, they're almost like a wholesaler or are they? No, they're a florist. We call it the farmer and the florist. So she's an actual florist that is using 100% Urban Buds flowers for the brides that want an Urban Buds wedding. Okay, so you don't have to do that. You can still supply the flowers without having to do the whole production. That that's pretty cool. I bet that's going to appeal to some people when they when they hear that because it seems like not everybody has a temperament for wedding work. You know, I mean, it's kind of like farming in general. I say, you know, people people don't get into farming because they love running businesses or necessarily doing you know doing wedding work and all that kind of thing. So that's a that's a cool partnership that might give people ideas for ways that they can expand. And so is is the the bouquet delivery service that you were just telling me about, is that, that's not a continuation of Porch Petals? Is it its own separate thing? It's its own separate thing. And Porch Petals still exists. And people can order online and pick up off the porch. That will continue with us. That is a really great program. So this is a, the deliveries is a whole other program that we've started uh, daily deliveries. In COVID, we started the Best Buds flower subscription. Yeah, so that, that became like our CSA, and I think we had five set five six sessions week, five sessions this year five sessions of six weeks this year where a Best Bud will uh, get a flower either for pickup or at market pick up off the porch or for delivery every week for six weeks. And we have some true blue customers. Mm -hmm. I think there were two this year, maybe three. No more, yeah. That bought the whole year (laughs) at once. So it's very, very sweet. You know, we normally have, I don't know, 13, maybe something We have 22 right now. Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It goes in cycles, okay? When people are out of town, you know, when people are in town, it's really interesting. We Our business is really dependent on the academic year. We see when people are traveling, of course, in summer, sales are different. When it's hot here, it's getting so hot and hotter. Well, you know, and so weddings in summer starts drying up. So you have to, again, have those multiple revenue streams, markets, weddings, right? Workshops. Yeah. Well, it's just such a challenge because, you know, most farmers and flower growers in particular have the most stuff in the middle of summer, when, which is not when the main floral holidays are. People may be traveling. Yeah, that was not the business model, right? So we go back to the, the business model. That was with never urban, the business model. With Urban Buds, because we bought this old glass greenhouse, right? It has this, has this Lord and Burnham glass greenhouse, a dinosaur with this beautiful quality of light when it's 20 degrees in winter outside and sunny it's 65 and beautiful inside and but it was all that that was always the model was winter production season extension and it's a riskier business model it takes more skills more growing skills and timing and not having the heat go out and dealing with the heat go out all the time but that's where the payoff is because there's so much competition in the summer plus yeah people are leaving it's hot. They're not getting you. You don't want to spend twenty thousand dollars on your wedding and sweat through your dress in July. So, 
We have to just I think, keep uh, that dynamic. I think additionally, if you look at the floral holidays that there are, you know, what's the first one you think about? And that's Valentine's Day. And that's in February. And right after Valentine's Day, it just snowballs all the floral holidays. And then by June, you know, by by May, June weddings, so you've had graduations, you've had Mother's Day, you've had Father's Day in between that Valentine's. And then June is the end of the wedding season for the summer. So, and then in July, everybody goes on vacation. So, you know, it, that's a lot of money to leave on the table between February and June for flowers. You know, all those holidays you completely miss because, you know, the average in Missouri, the average farmer who doesn't, isn't doing season extension, isn't coming into the marketplace until about June, right at the end of all those holidays. So that never made sense for the Wild Fang or Urban Buds business plan. The season extension has always been a part since I started farming 30 years ago. It was always, you know, I always saw that as um, an issue. Yeah. Well, it makes me wonder how many of those old glass greenhouses are out there because you wouldn't think there are that many, but you know, right, that Lynn, so Lynn Bozinski, for the founder of Growing for Market, she found a glass greenhouse, old frame, you know, I have no idea what vintage it is, but she was able, I think they were going to demolish it and she was able to buy it and fix it up with some other growers. And I think that's part of her projects these days. So I don't know, maybe, you know, that's something people may not think about, but there may be structures out there that could be bought... I got to ask, did you have to replace all the glass or was it serviceable? Yeah, we did. I mean, seriously, Miranda got a phone call as extension agent that said, hey, there's this old, Miranda and I at the time were talking about farming together, right? And, we, and I still owned Wild Thing. And I, you know, I didn't want to go back out. I didn't want to go back out there. I didn't want that drive into St. Louis, that two hour drive, all those headaches that I talked about earlier. I wasn't looking to have those back again, but I really wanted to farm. And uh, Miranda got a phone call from Extension. Someone called Extension and said, hey, there's this old glass greenhouse in the city. It's condemned and vandalized. And Miranda said, hey, I'll come take a look. And, you know, they were like, do you know anybody that wants to buy it? Miranda was like, well, you know, because she talks to a lot of farmers. That's her job. She went and looked at it. And so she called me later that day and said, Mima. There's this old glass greenhouse in St. Louis. Do you want to go look at it? And the second I walked in, glass was crunching under our feet. It had been condemned and vandalized for over nine years. Miranda said, Mima, I don't know who would buy this place. And I was like, we will buy it right now. <laughs> Call them. I immediately saw the vision. I mean, I... I mean, it came to me, it came up through the, the life, the breath of that greenhouse and that and the farm that is Urban Buds today. I saw it. I saw it 11 years ago. What we have there today is exactly what I saw the first time I walked in there. I just got that vision. And, you know, Marina and I definitely did not believe in going to the debt. So we both kept our daytime jobs and put, I think it was $1,000 each a month. Wasn't that it? It was $500 a month, $1,000 total. $1,000 total of our income went into Urban Buds every month 
and we just replaced replaced the glass and had to work with the city a lot and permitting and you know Miranda really you know carried that ball in a big way because I was really focused on the land. Miranda was working on the infrastructure and permitting and working with the city because in the city that's one of the you know you can't just do anything you want when you you know are in the city. There's permitting to, for everything. So we had to jump through those hoops. Yeah. Well, it's, it sounds like it was a lot of work. I was trying to do my homework. I read a little bit about the property with all the tires. And I mean, it sounds like it, it took a lot of work to get it oh, yeah, to get it, it where, where you are today. Yeah. Uh, but that's amazing that, you, you know, like that's amazing to have that vision in the first place and then to actually manifest it. You know, it sounds like you guys are making it happen. It sounds like it's going pretty well. It is. It's going really well. So, you know, I don't think I was very clear before. How we sell flowers. Farmers markets, we have the petals, porch petals pick up. We have daily deliveries. And then we have a subscription, Best Buds Flower Club. And those are the those are the main ways. It's actually four ways that the flowers leave the farm. We, you know, start Sundays or end Sundays with an empty cooler every week. So, you know, we're, we're selling some flowers here. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the flowers, yeah, what are your most important flower crops then? Well, we're getting ready right now to plant ranunculus. And that is a really big, we do six successions of ranunculus so that we have ranunculus through, we're not going to make Christmas, I can tell you that. But we were trying to make Christmas and we're not going to do that. And, but we'll have it January, we'll have ranunculus January, and it'll go straight up into May. Right, because that's a real cool season star. So you're putting that in now in to be harvesting early in 2024. Yeah, yeah. And then there's uh, stock, freesia, I said ranunculus, anemones, delphinium. You know, we really like, I love, we, I really love the winter production. It's less pest pressure, less people out in the field, you know, there's just... The thing I was going to say is Mima has really taken on these specialty tulips. She went and got some continuing education a few years ago with these tulip growers out in uh, Vermont, maybe. Mm -hmm. And so they have mentored her. The ones with the, they have a, it's, is it the one they have a, it's called the tulip workshop or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Emily Von Trapp. Okay. All right. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just want to know if, uh, if uh, that was the people I was thinking of. Okay. So especially tulips. Okay. So yeah, tulips are happening. I mean, the early spring stuff is our bread and butter and absolutely gorgeous. And it's intense. I mean, I have to say the push between October and Mother's Day is intense, but definitely March, April, when you're harvesting tulips four times a day and they take washing, more processing than our regular cut flower. So, and you have to change the water a lot more frequently and they blow out so fast. So when you have tulips and then ranunculus, which you have to stay on top of that harvesting too. And this year we had several new crew members and ranunculus was harder than I thought to teach. Like the correct time to cut it, you mean? Yeah, or just what makes a good flower and... 
being able to train quality, like like seeing quality, they're getting much better. I mean, now they they can know it, you know, and I'm excited for a couple employees that have indicated they would like to come back next season and do another season. And I really, I was talking to them about it and I, I was like, I'm, I'm really curious to see what the Renunculus Harvest will look like if both of these employees come back. I feel like that would be quite a boon for us, but we'll see. Okay. Do you ever do a, a complete greenhouse clean out? I'm thinking like for you, it would be the summertime I'm thinking, or, or are you always you're relay cropping 365 days a year? No, yeah, we're we're flipping beds. We will use a buckwheat crop again. You know, we don't have any machinery, so we have to be really careful in that we're using crops that are easy for us to eradicate. Cover crops, so buckwheat. We have changed the plastic and let the water in during the summer. We've done that practice, but we're we're flipping beds pretty hard here. Limited land space. You know, right now, I mean, one of the disadvantages of urban farming is that you're landlocked. You know, there's nowhere, there's really nowhere to go. Yeah, I would like to jump in here with this. I think that truly, we, you know, we are soil farmers. You know, like urban farming now is, is really hydroponic, indoor focused, but we are soil farmers. And as such, like, I think Mima and I are in 100% agreement that our number one priority has to be soil health. You know, once that goes, then it all goes. It all goes. It all goes. So, and that includes making sure we don't get buildup of diseases. So crop rotation, the cover crops, adding compost, meeting with Alan Polishek, our, you know, get our soil tests done, like a really good soil test, and then talk to someone about it and add the right everything. And, you know, like, oh, our, our organic matter right now, Andrew, is actually getting too high, right? So we have to pull it back. And mycorrhizal, worms, you know, all this kind of stuff. And because we're, we have all these different types of soils to manage, because we're growing on some areas that houses were on, and there's really bad drainage. We had this soil scientist who surveys soils come and explain what perched like the fish soil is because we just, so we have to use tiller radishes and planting on the contour. We're thinking about tiling this one piece. So anyway, we could do a whole chapter on soils, but that truly is where we have to start. So what what is perched soil? You mean like a perched water table or yeah, what what do you mean by perched soil? Yes, that's right. Like it's going through so in this one spot that one of the houses burnt and then we bought the flat land after they demoed it, but in St. Louis what they're supposed to do is take off as much as they can, crack the foundation and then fill in and then a foot of clay tops top infill dirt, you know, just kind of trash dirt. And so then for us to grow on it, we bring in topsoil compost blend. We treat it with years of cover crop or tiller radishes to try to break up some of that clay. But what we noticed when the soil scientists came this year was that the first like two and a half feet now were pretty good, but then it hit this level of almost like concrete where this that clay just it was unpenetrable so they said there's almost like this underground river running through that we (laughs) we can't see because the water isn't you know it's going through that like two feet to but then two and a half feet in some areas but then it's hitting that water table and going so we see that problem in that area you know i mean we're not dumb we notice that there's problems so 
when we talk about urban farming, like that's an issue. The soil, there's your new degree. There's a degree, urban soil scientists for, for production. Yeah. But we, you know, when we started this project, part of it was almost kind of like a experimentation station for Mima and I, or I mean, a passion project, or again, like we wanted to see if we could do it. Could we test this hypothesis of being a for-profit family farm in the city? Yeah. Yeah, let's test it. Yeah. So a lot of, uh, on the spot that she's talking about, we built up, uh, and that's the way it is in a lot of urban areas. And that is one of the disadvantages of urban farming is it's costly to build up. It's costly to bring in all that soil. Um, it's a lot, it's a lot of soil. Yeah. And, um, and, and that, that is actually cost prohibitive to a lot of urban farmers. We also had places where there were no structures, which was after the greenhouse, the second most exciting thing about the farm is that there were, there was the last little bit, little, little bit that had never had a structure on it. So when we tilled that with a BCS walk behind tiller for the first time, the organic matter was 8%. And that was beautiful. And we were digging out Bermuda grass forever. But, you know, one of the things, again, about urban farming is we're, we're trying right now to come up with like a better term for it than like, I, I sometimes think like human scale farming, like the reason labor is so high in our business model is because it's all handwork. We're not using herbicides. We're not using cultivators. I mean, shoot, we're hardly tilling at all anymore. Now the beds are almost all permanent. Like we just use a broad fork and plant into them. So we don't even have a tractor on the farm. And so it's all this, this handwork. And I think that is something also like that is quite different in this micro farming small scale farming. So that's then where the value added becomes so important. Yeah. Well, let me know when you've got the right moniker for that farming at a, at a human scale. Because I, I feel like, yeah, we got a lot of, I think we have a lot of GFM readers and listeners who are trying to do a similar kind of thing of like keep farming at a human scale, but also keep it profitable, of course. And urban agriculture is one of the things that we would like to promote here at GFM as it cuts down on food and flower miles and also opens up areas that people traditionally may not have considered for farming since one of the barriers to people entering farming is often access to land. So including urban areas and what we think of as farmable land may open up possibilities for people who want to farm. But yeah, that's why I wanted to have this conversation today, because we also know there are some different circumstances to having a farm in the city versus a more rural area. Were there any other pros or cons? Any other realities of farming in the city that you'd like to tell us about? Yes, Absolutely. Immediately when we bought this farm, we live in a diverse neighborhood. What do you call it? Middle class, working working class. class. I'm sorry, working class neighborhood. And we have both worked with extension and we have worked with kids, for example, who were building a community garden with children. And a kid would say, Oh, can we grow bacon? Just the incredible. I mean, we laugh about that, but the incredible disconnect between agriculture and the city or people in the city, just no connection to their food. Urban agriculture gives, brings the food, brings the flowers, brings the community into the city so that people have a can have a people walking by here in our alley even okay the first thing we did was plant in the alley so that people could see agriculture you know people walk by all the time like oh this is so beautiful who would ever think this would be on a, a an alley 
you know, because we wanted them to see from seed to harvest what that looked like, okay? So we have this beautiful farm here in the city, although I see a lot of weeds right now. A lot of weeds right now. <laughs> but We don't have to talk about those. You know, this beautiful farm. Right, right. You know, this beautiful farm in the city. It looks great. It's really cool concept, blah, blah, blah. So working class neighborhood, right? Andrew, this neighborhood is, I wonder, I walk a fine line between, remember it was condemned and vandalized. So I walk a fine line between neighborhood stabilization and gentrification. I have real issues. You know, people are like, oh, we just, we... And we've had like three people tell us they just bought a home in this neighborhood because we were here. Now, it's a little concerning because we are the name we have done an incredible job in the last year, 11 years being stabilizers for this neighborhood. But also that changes. We see change a little bit coming and that's concerning. So, you know, it, it's just how you walk it, how you think it. And, you know, Moran and I, I guess we see, we, you know, we have different different days, we have different opinions about it because we both are, you know, kind of floating across that line, trying to figure it out. What is, how we yeah, want to live it, with it. It's interesting. It's like today I was driving in and I saw this, this guy who's been posted on the corner for the past, I don't know, five months. I mean, like we all know, like with his backpack and, like, come on, we know what he's doing. And today he was getting picked up by the cops. And I was looking at it and there's this mix between crime. I have been hurt by crime in this neighborhood. And I mean, we one of the employees found a handgun last Monday, a week ago today. They were weeding in one of the outdoor plots and they found a, a handgun and they called, she told her supervisor, the supervisor called Mima, they called the cops, you know, that the cops came and got the handgun, you know, but this stuff is, it's real. And I just think it's like added some hard stuff with urban farming, where we are, you know, in this particular location. But what's important to our story, I think, is because we didn't come with family land or family money or high paying jobs, our opportunity was in a working class neighborhood. Well, I disagree with that. Okay, right now, <laughs> you're not going to find it. The only place you're going to find an urban farm is in a working class neighborhood, okay? <laughs> You're not gonna find urban farm in any other neighborhood but a working class, but I can tell you that right now, guaranteed. Well, I'm okay. gonna push back on that. Look at the one you drive past to on your way to drop off August in the Central West End. It's not an urban farm. It is, they call it an urban farm. Okay, what they call, okay, okay. You understand, I mean, you know. So, I mean, I think one of the, the, the property we feel like has its own spirit. You know, it was farming. It was it was like a flower. We have records from 1870 on it. You know, before that, it was Osage land. What we know of settlement started in 1870. And from 1904 for three generations, they were farmer florists. Literally, they had a farmer shop. They're doing exactly what we're doing. <laughs> and so they, they had, so the neighborhood grew up this piece of property and we kept this little tiny bit of it and have brought it back to production. So I think when everything is, when we take away sort of the sociology of everything and we kind of go to like care of the soil and stewardship of this little bit of land, I think that's where we find our best clarity. But I, th I think 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, I think I get what you're saying as far as how to contribute to the neighborhood without completely changing the character, right? Because that's what people typically complain about gentrification. It takes, you know, the people who've been there and can change it very rapidly too, so. Right, it's happening, I feel it. It's happening. A guy came to market the other day and he said, oh, we just bought your house, uh, we bought a house across the alley from you, you know, through the back alley. And it was not someone who would have bought that house eight years ago, you know. Anyway, we'll see. We'll just see how it all pans out. Yeah. Well, that's definitely an issue that farms in more rural areas don't have to um, to be dealing with. Yeah, but, but I, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's a really important issue, you know, as more urban fire farmers come online, that they consider those issues, what they're doing, the impact of urban farming on urban communities and, na- and urban neighborhoods. I think it's really something to consider. I mean, we everything we do, we gear ourselves, promote ourselves as this little boutique farm. You know, this little, people almost think it's an Irish Spring commercial over here, you know, but, you know, so <laughs> instead of buy a house next door, do it, you know, it's pretty cool, but is it really, I mean, you know, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is not the gentrification aspect is not something that I thought of a whole lot. And, in you know, in as much as we can encourage things through, say, articles and, you know, podcasts and talking about them. We really like that idea. In fact, within the last couple of years, we had an article about um, growing on brownfields uh, and including lots, you know, lots in cities, for example, that may have been used for industrial uses, it, specifically with flowers. Right. Because that might be a way to grow, you know, depending on what was done there, it's a way to grow. Obviously, you wouldn't want to grow food on a super fun site, but def- depending what's there, we found several growers who were growing flowers on land that you would never want to grow, you know, edibles on. But it's a, you know, we want to be part of the good change, you know, at growing for market. And so I, th- I think that's really important in that it's something we're encouraging that you brought up this issue that doesn't exist for people farming in, in rural areas. So, well, I, I think that can kind of go to a bit of Mima's just sort of, well, the work of changing the face of the flower farmer, right? Like there is a very sort of specific idea in mass media right now of what a boutique flower farmer looks like. <laughs> so part of what, what she's doing with the Association of Specially Cut Flower Growers and what I'm doing with Lincoln University is trying to diversify agriculture, bring returning generation farmers or black farmers, farmers of color who can come to it from lots of different angles. Maybe mm-hmm. they're like the sisters from Oklahoma where they they were, what are they called again? But they came to it from a floral perspective and then they started to grow more. The wild more. mother. The wild mother, right? They're doing some amazing work. And so people come to it as as artists or they come to it as growers or things like that. Yeah, so the changing the face of the flower farmer and what we really want to do with our Urban Bud story, why it's so important to talk about the genesis of the project. Again, not having family land, working our jobs, bootstrapping this business to a point of sustainability is, I think, just like really pivotal to trying to build a new society in the shell of the old, right? Or try to reimagine these brown fields or these urban spaces or this wreck of a greenhouse and bring something positive. Yeah, absolutely. That is very important. And, and I appreciate that your your efforts on that. To quickly follow up on something that 
you mentioned b- before, I know you said that it sounds like you, you've gotten in a good rhythm with bed prep and stuff like that. And you said you were getting to the point where you had almost too much organic matter. How much is too much as far as you're concerned? We were creeping at 9%. Okay. I've heard some people, other people who've done a really good job or almost like a too good of a job building organic matter. Yeah. Saying that once they get up into the close to the double digits, they have problems with the crops Mm -hmm. like keeling over because the the soil is too fluffy and and stuff like that. Yeah. We're we're not adding compost right now. Yeah. We're backing off and and that's good. You know what I mean? Like it's good to, to ebb and flow and learn and grow. I mean, when you start off as an organic farmer, it's like more combos. How could you ever have enough compost? You know? Yeah. In that context, I wanted to ask what your bed turnover process is like. Like I know a lot of people, it sounds like you're minimal or no till. And um, I know a lot of people start out with tarps or something like that. But then, I mean, it sounds like you might've gotten to the point where you're, are you just, are you just taking out a previous crop, maybe broad forking and then just putting the next one in? Yeah. Um, and, and then we're tarping places with real bad weed control. Our scourge and urban farming throughout St. Louis City and beyond is uh, bindweed, morning glory. So we, we tarp areas to try to kill Bermuda, kill some weeds, weeds back and things We've like that. We've had success with getting rid of bindweed by tarping uh, area for a complete year. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's a long time to tarp an area, but... On a little, little spot. On a little urban spot. Yeah, to put it um, out of production. It's, it's a long time, yeah. Yeah, we thought about maybe writing like a SARE grant to... We, with, at one point, we thought about bringing in like Vietnamese potbelly pigs to somehow like... <laughs> in the city, you can have one and um, in code and like maybe they could... We could have a pen that moves and they're digging up the bindweed. Like, I still think it might Kinda be. Kind of like a tr- chicken tractor. Chicken tractor, right. But it's a pig tractor. But a Vietnamese potbelly pig. And then move around and dig out the bindweed. But Yeah, I don't know. So there's ideas on ways to deal with it. But yeah, that's what we've kind of found so far. Yeah. Let us know when you got the pig going. That We'd love to hear about that. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, yeah. no, it'd be all no. over Instagram. It'd be so no. adorable. Slash, no, I don't no. know. <laughs> we were having chickens. You know, we had these, we had cycles of having chickens. We're on an off chicken cycle. But we had these American game bird breed of chickens that could fly over an eight-foot fence and roost in trees. Oh, my God. It was a nightmare. And on people's cars and stuff. Yeah, the breed really matters. Some of those little bantam hens and are just... <laughs> They're just wild. Yeah, we've we've been there. <laughs> you were asking about our main crops, and I don't think we finished Okay, that. yeah, I'd love to hear more about we? that. Maybe freesia. Ranunculus is a main crop. Lusianthus is a main summer crop. Again, we need, most of our business is um, arrangements and bouquet work, right? So we don't do a lot of one crop. But we have several smaller plantings of different crops. We go over 80 varieties. And I like that. I like the diversity because it gives us diversity for our bouquet work. I think if we, for anyone interested in growing cut flowers out there and they have land, it would be wonderful just to increase our greens production. Always the foliages and being able to plant more woodies and even like a tunnel or a caterpillar tunnel of just 
foliage, right? That would be beautiful. Right. This is part of that because a lot of those, the greens and fillers and foliage and stuff like that, a lot of those are perennials and you, you need to be relay cropping those areas to get the most out of them. Like peonies, lilac, they take up a lot of space yeah. and, and limited time production, right? I have a, a greenhouse now that we're putting into all greens. Greens are really overlooked and there's some beautiful greens out there that I really love. Scented geranium. We had a real cold snap last December and we lost these older plantings of eucalyptus. And I think Mima has felt that loss. I have. Yeah, right. How old were those? They were nine years. They were nine years old. We replanted a new crop, but that was amazing. Yeah, that was sad. That That's winter production though for you. It's so, It's risky. Yeah, it's a it's a gamble. Do you have any other tips for people to get the most flowers out of a small area, whether it be in a city or not? Employees, people who come here often complain that there's that the aisles are really small. Okay, our pathways are really small, and I have to remind them, the employees, that there's no money in the aisle. <laughs> so you know we plant tight. Everything here is is pretty tight. And use all of your space. Use all of your space. Use the, you know, your land. Anything here can be cut. Anything planted here mostly can be cut. Yeah, I would say plant close together. You know, just keep on pushing that spacing. And so then you're going to have to deal with your watering more. And disease and disease pressure. You know, you have more to contend with, but... It's higher management. It's higher management. It's higher management. I'd also say... That just a real simple tip is using the cage instead of using Horvanova netting. So we don't use the white plastic netting. Um, Instead, we buy these big, like 100 foot rolls of concrete mesh that kind of look like cattle panel, but are more flexible. So we get them from like a concrete company and we cut them out and lay out two by fours and bend them to fit over our beds. And so they're maybe this tall. Right. They're foot tall. They're foot tall. And the caging is really more important when the plant, at like the lower parts of the plant for most crops. So this has just helped, really helped to have things not fall over and not cut that Horvanova netting or have a cat or a bird get stuck in it or some such thing. So I'd say that's kind of like an easy thing. And then another thing I would say is for weed control, we do in the aisles like cardboard with leaves, like consider using more leaves because in the city, we can, leaves are free and abundant and straw is like $8 a bale and has, <laughs> and has herbicides on it. Okay. Yeah. So we've been burned by straw. We don't like to use straw except uh-uh. for like banking the doors of the greenhouses and high tunnels in winter, you know, like the old days, you know, we bank around them. But other than that, no, for, for mulch, we use a lot of leaves and we got that from Lisa Mason Ziegler. She really is a big leaf, compo- really likes using leaves. So Those, I think, are a couple of tips. And just truly one time, an old time grower looked at me and and she said, the best fertilizer is water. And and so just really try to get that watering. It's a tricky thing. I know it's time consuming, but try to get that, figure out your irrigation, especially in the city. Things are getting hotter. It's hotter. It is getting hotter. We notice it. Yeah, it's getting a lot hotter. And and I surrounded would, by concrete. And I think when we talk about Sarah Grants or what's next is more and more experiments with shade. 
shade growing and how do we make this better on our employees and our bodies and the soil yeah do you do you shade your greenhouse in the summertime you know the you know the spray on shade or shade cloth okay you do yeah because i was thinking i mean gosh that was part of my question about whether you guys ever clean out your greenhouse i was thinking gosh a greenhouse in missouri in the summertime must be really hot so okay so you dial it back a bit by turning it at least partially shading it it's still 120 degrees in there. In the, we don't have a pad and fan. We're very old school with this. So the one edible crop we do grow is ginger. And I'm going to let Mima talk about it right now. We've had a really good ginger year this year. And I'm kind of curious to think why you think it is. Because, right, because there's, there, there's a Growing for Market article from back in 2015 where you guys are already talking about having grown ginger for three years at that point, which I think would make you one of the earlier adopters on that crop. And so I was thinking, like, wow, you know, you're mostly a flower farm. It sounds like ginger is maybe the only edible or one of the only edibles you grow. Yeah. Tell us about the ginger. Why has that remained an important crop for you? So if it was three years, we visited Betsy and Alex out in North Carolina. Yeah. So I went to my mentor, you know, one of my mentors, Betsy at a Peregrine Farms in North Carolina. And we visited them and, and Alex took, uh, Alex was like, Hey, I got something to show you guys. And he took Miranda and I out into his greenhouse and he stuck this, you know, fork into the ground and leaned back and this ginger just bubbled up out of the ground. And the smell was just amazing. And I was just like so blown away. I was like, dude, are you kidding me? Alex took me out to the greenhouse. He said, Miranda, I know your background is food. I want to show you something. And so, and that, and I fell in love right then and there. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah. So ginger, we both just were totally taken by it. And it's like a specialty crop, at least back then. Now more and more people are growing it. But when we started, it was like, nobody was growing it. Everybody's like, what, what is this? And again, along those lines of boutique specialty, it fit. And it was something we could grow in that very hot greenhouse in the summer. Okay. We had the rotation space for it. You know, we had a bed for it. It could go, it could be in that greenhouse with shade and do well. And, you know, it likes water and we just used, it's fairly, you know, it's not a complicated crop to grow. It's just a long, long, long um, growing season for it. I mean, we bring it in in February and we're starting to harvest it, you know, now into September. What we really like about it is that it can keep that soil alive and growing, right? We know that it's best for the soil to have things growing. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's why the ginger is just such a win-win for us. um, Yeah, more people. We just have another new person bringing it to market this year. And we were kind of like, what? They're doing ginger now? You know, but what you going to do, you know? Yeah. We love the ginger. Yeah, I can tell. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and have our customers come back and go like, oh, my God, that was amazing, you know, and and buy more of it. Now, now we have them coming to us. Is the ginger ready yet? Is it, you know, there's an anticipation for the ginger. Are you able to use the greenery from ginger at all in arrangements or is greenery or anything like that? No. No. OK, because it has a kind of exotic looking leaves but I, I i haven't seen i haven't seen it so i figured there's some reason why why not that would be awesome though that, that that i guess that would be the dream is if you harvest the root and use the greens but i guess not 
Right. That would be the dream for sure. Well, speaking of other favorite crops, I saw um, one of the things I was reading uh, that lisianthus is one of your favorite crops, and it's notoriously difficult to start from seed. In fact, we ran an article a few months back by a grower encouraging, acknowledging that it's difficult to start from seed, also encouraging growers to try it just because I guess there are some varieties, I know there are some varieties that are only available as seed. And, you know, saying that it's, it might be, it's worthwhile, I guess, if you like a challenge that it's, it's not undoable. Do you start any of your lisianthus from seed or do you grow it all from plugs? We do both because again, back to marketing ourselves as a boutique farm, we want to be able to grow lisianthus that the brokers, all the major plug suppliers are not growing. So there's seeds, there's varieties that I like that I can't get from a broker. And so I need to be growing those seeds, right? And then I also bring in plugs from brokers, from grow and sell, I buy in plugs. So I do both, a combination of both. I don't wanna just depend on what they have available. And I think that um, when I think about, I mean, I've been farming, doing this for like 30 years. And I think that what I'm seeing now is a lot of new growers, they're coming into the marketplace but not really learning the growing, the propagation part. You know, it's like, it's so easy to, you know, hit the button and put in an order for a plug. When growers are buying stock plugs, you know, stock takes 24 hours to germinate. There's really not a lot to it. Why would you pay extra money to buy a plug? You know, I mean, it's just really learning how to be a grower from seed to sale. And I'm really concerned about what's happening in the industry that people are so quick to hit that send button on a plug order. Yeah. Opposed to like, hey, I have this greenhouse base. Let me order the seed in, grow it. Just have more experience with the crop life. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's easy to order plugs. I get it. I order them. I order plugs too. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying, make sure... That you know how to, because when you get ready to, when you want to grow a crop that a broker doesn't have, if you don't know how to grow, then you can't have it. You're limited. You've limited your ability. Yeah, that's true. It's important to have those skills. Yes. It's important to have those growing skills. Yeah. Propagation growing skills. It's really, it's really important. Well, that's, that is a good point. Well, we, we have been talking for a while now. Before we go or before I give you the chance to talk about anything I might should have asked you about, I did, you know, I was thinking about what you were saying about how you want to try and help make farming more diverse because it's it's really interesting. You read those surveys from the USDA and you hear those stats about how the, the average age of farmers is, you know, 60 something and overwhelmingly white and male and all that kind of thing. And sometimes I think, well, growing for market has a different audience. Like I know just from our social media demographics and things like that, we have a younger audience, more female, maybe more diverse. But on the other hand, I, I do want growing for market to be part of the change that we want to see as far as I want the anybody who has a passion for it can do farming and growing. And so I thought I just wanted to ask if there's anything, any opportunities that you see either for growing for market into that we have this platform to help continue, I, I guess, you know, both be welcoming. You know, that's one thing we want to do is be say anybody who has an in, a, interest in agriculture, we want to be welcoming to them. Is there anything that growing for market could be doing or that growers can do to be 
more welcoming or help make our community of growers more diverse. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. It's a really great question. I think, you know, a long time ago, my father wasn't really wild about cut flowers. He thought it was really expensive. He thought it had a very high entry level. I think that different farming opportunities or conferences and workshops and very high entry levels and and costs. So that really helps keep our agriculture looking the way it looks today. And it's the first line of exclusion. I mean, it's not intentional, but it is what it is. That is the outcome, no matter intentional or not, that is the outcome. So I think by maybe bringing more programming into the community, actually looking for urban farmers because they are around, they are doing that work and providing a more direct route, whether that be scholarship opportunities, whether that be whatever opportunities that are. And then we're we're talking about, there's a really broad range of people here that are really can't afford. I mean, very select few people can afford farming, right? I mean, really, really narrow, really narrow. Yeah, I'd like to jump in here a bit. Yeah, I think that's a good question that you asked for. I guess I would just say it's like growing for market as an entity could look at some strategic partnerships in terms of maybe sponsorship at um, some important conferences or contacts. I could name like Falcon is one that happens in uh, Las Vegas at like end of October. That's for like um, indigenous and tribal gardeners and agricultural workers. There's the professional agricultural workers at Tuskegee University, which is part of the 1890 HBCU model. And that one is one of the oldest ag, like that type of professional ag worker within the 1890 system. And then the 1994 land grants. So those are the tribal institutions. And there's many of them in Wisconsin, Michigan. There's one in Kansas. You know, there's so trying to like reach out profile farmers or profile Mm -hmm. research that is happening around these topics that people care about. So something that is that we see a lot in coming out of like the 1994 tribal or Hispanic speaking institutions is this idea of food sovereignty or matriation of seeds. So people doing work where they're getting people to grow these traditional varieties of seeds and then having a nutrition component with it. That is very interesting to people Mm -hmm. right now. So tapping into those people doing that work, Mm -hmm. and then there's the Black Urban Growers Conference. That one is well attended. It sometimes is in Detroit, sometimes is in Chicago, sometimes is in New York. So I think just really trying to find these places and then as a white-owned or ostensibly white-owned organization go into it, or me, when I go into these spaces as a white woman, is like our first responsibility is to listen and to say, just listen. And I think it, it's if we could just become better listeners, <laughs> then a lot of things would help. So have that, like, continue to do our internal work, our revolution of the heart, but really make these contexts, these sort of points of, you know, food growing, the earth, soil. This is nonpartisan. This is not racial. You know, all this stuff around it is, but at its core, this is the stuff of life and we can come around on this. So when we put ourselves in places with an open heart and heart of listening, we can make connections and then 
you say, oh, this is interesting to you. Could you tell me a grower who's doing that work? I want to feature them. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it is up in freaking, where is it? Upper Peninsula, <laughs> right? Of Michigan. <laughs> okay, well, kind of off the beaten path, but there's people up there doing this good work. Yeah, I would start with growing for market, looking for places to booth. Yeah. Because that's where you're going to end. Then next week, is it this week or next week? Outreach. It's always outreach. Yeah. This week or next week is the HBCU, Historically Black College and Universities Conference on Climate Change. Mm -hmm. So in in Louisiana, you know, that, man, you're going to get a ton of people doing a ton of different things and in one spot, you know, and you're just standing there, you know, and they're coming to you. So, you know, I think that there are ways. It's just... You know, having the energy, the commitment and, you know, financial ability to go get it, you know, and be aware what's going on right now. Like, here's a public service announcement. The Farm Service Agency is accepting discrimination claims up until like Halloween of this year. This has been long term proven policy that has stripped people of color of land. And now the Biden administration is putting money towards it. Do people know about it? Do they know the mechanism to deal with that? Like, so just that outreach and that education of these are things that are important to these communities and trying to connect with people who are doing that good work. Yeah, right. Well, and yeah, that's worth noting, right, is that the USDA, people may not know this, but the USDA lost a lawsuit for systemic racism, which is is one of the reasons that farming in this country is as as white as it is, because of of, of a lot of people were were dis who should otherwise be in the system were disenfranchised, and so that is good, at least for people to know. I mean, it's obviously not going to fix everything overnight, but it is a opportunity if people hopefully. People can get some compensation if they have been discriminated against by our own country's Department of Agriculture, of all places. So, all right. Well, I appreciate that because I do, Growing for Market does try to work with a few organizations. We don't make a big deal about it and, you know, give away some free subscriptions to communities that have been excluded. And I'm also, you know, I'm thinking like, I want Growing for Market to be welcoming to everybody. It's it's like, like you just said, you know, everybody eats, your plants don't know what color you are. They don't know what gender you are, that kind of stuff. Right. So it's truly something, you know, I feel like agriculture should be something that every everybody needs it to stay alive. And I want the population of farmers to reflect the population of the, the of the country. But, you know, I was also thinking maybe that's maybe that's just picking the low hanging fruit for us. As far as, you know, that's something that's easy for us to do because we already put the magazine out there. So it's easy for us to say, like, yeah, sure, we'll, you know, we'll donate some subscriptions to your program. But I would like us to be proactive, you know, at the, at the very least, want everybody to know, you know, it's a welcoming community, nine or 98% of all the food and flowers that people are getting are from, like you were talking about, very, you know, hem- heavily chemical use um, kind of places. I mean, there's in flower farming, it's particularly tough, because as, as you know, you know, the US government subsidized flowers coming from Central, South and Central America to try and combat the drug trade, which is, it's a noble idea, but A, I don't know how well it's working and B, it's really rough. I mean, that, I think that had a really bad effect on the flower industry as far as it's hard for greenhouses in California, Missouri, anywhere to compete to flowers that are flown in and subsidized. So Andrew, Andrew, you have just made the full circle, right? Because that's exactly how you have all these empty glass greenhouses 
across the country was from that agreement that put tons of American growers out of business. Yeah. From that noble act. Which has been, yeah, particularly hard on flower growers. So, you know, I mean, that's what I like of it, think of it is that we we have seen a huge growth over like let's say past 20 past 30 years there's statistics from the USDA out there about the growth of farmers markets and so that's been amazing it's leveled off a little bit but what we want to do is keep people coming into market farming we want to at least a growing for market everybody's welcome right because we want people coming from all walks of life all areas to be part of that change. Yeah, I'd like to just mention two other partnerships that I think might be helpful for you. One is Minority Land Owner Magazine, Victor Harris. He profiles successful Black farmers, minority farmers. That might be a way to connect. And then, right, coming at it with an angle, I think to become a farmer or an entrepreneur it's, you sort of have to be an outsider, right? You have to be a risk taker and an outsider and kind of say like, I have a bit of a freak flag and I want to grow, I want to grow flowers or vegetable. Like I'm not, I don't want to work for the man, right? You know, so somehow like connecting with those people and I'd say a lot of people like younger people, especially getting into who have interests are coming out of like veganism or health and a real true concern about climate change. Like they think this stuff is real. And then the last thing I would say, just a recent poll showed that one in five people between 18 and 23 identify as queer. And so there's some interesting new research coming about like how farming is always portrayed as this heteronormative thing, right? You marry your spouse, you farm. And so some of these barriers to having access to maybe like maybe you're queer and you're nervous about calling the Amish grow the Amish people to help put up your high tunnel. Or maybe you're queer and you're nervous about having the extension agent come to your home, you know, things like that. So these are little ways in which, uh, or not little ways, they're not little, but th- this is another sort of take on that diversity. And then lastly, Department of Veterans Affairs. They're putting energy into getting these veterans into farming. And that's another really area of neurodiversity, Mm -hmm. racial diversity, diversity Mm -hmm. of experience. But there's like heroes to hives. Beekeeping is very popular right now. But even just advantageous loans for um, veterans getting into farming. And that's quite a diverse group. So. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm glad that we got to this part of the conversation because a few of the organizations that you mentioned, I had not heard of before. And so that as far as growing for market, that's something that we could reach out to. And, and that is, you know, that's one of I do want people to know, you know, growing for market, if you're interested in agriculture, we're interested in you. You know, that definitely gives me some food, food for thought, and maybe some things that we can do because, yeah, I mean, besides just wanting to be welcoming to everybody, I think a lot of people who are, are interested in farming, like you said, there's a climate change aspect or they're basically doing it because they think it's a good thing f- for the world. And, and they probably also love it, too. Even if they're self-described, I was talking yeah. to a, a farmer client recently and, and he described himself as a prepper. You know, and uh, our farm visit consisted of, you know, the government's going to fall and we need to have our produce and, you know, it kind of goes off in left field or whatever. But then, yeah, we bring it back to how's your soil test, <laughs> you know, so yeah, there's a lot of ways to just kind of bring it back to this 
sort of basic idea. And I think the basic, truly, truly the basic idea is people want to feel like they have agency over their lives. They want to feel like they can grow their food and survive and take care of their family and their self. So you're right. Mission driven. I have one other thing. So we are so excited and so honored to be the host tour farm for the AFCFG Association of Special Cup Flower Growers National Conference, October, November, November 6th through 9th mm-hmm. here in St. Louis. Really, it's going to be a great time, a lot of learning, and we really want you all to be there. Come join us. That's going to be so exciting. Those conferences really put you just above the bar pushes your business forward because I, of what you learn and fellowship. So it's been really important. My first meeting, I it propelled my business. It's, my first meeting is where I first learned how to grow Lizianthus and it propelled my business three to five years in one conference. Yeah. So, and that's real. That is not upsell or anything. That really is true. When, when you talk about not being an early adopter of social media, Andrew, us too, kind of in some ways. And it was at a conference where Sunny Meadows Flower Farm said, we're opening your Instagram account right now on this tour bus <laughs> to this farm tour. And Gretel Adams <laughs> took me this phone and she's like, <laughs> took a picture. We didn't have social media and they were like, what? Wait, we what? Facebook. We went to the, oh geez, that's a whole nother story. But we just had Facebook. Gretel you know, Adams was Gretel like, Excuse me. She's like, you're you're on it. And then she's like, oh, I followed you. And then other people on the bus were like, I followed you. And and now, you know, I'm proud. We have like 16,000 followers. That's pretty good, you know. But it's like, so that's, we're like, Insta what now? Yeah, that was back then. We're Insta Insta what now? So, So, I mean, that's just one tiny example of what you can get out of this conference. So I think professional mm. development is just so important. Right. You it's, have to stay cut. That's how we learned about the ginger too, was this organization through Alex and Etsy. So. Yeah. ASCFG, great organization. If, if flower growers are listening to this and haven't gotten in touch or become members of the ASCFG, you're missing out. Go check out the ASCFG. And that's ASCFG.org. There you go. Great organization. We also love Gretel. We had actually had Gretel and Steve on the pod back a few months ago. So yeah, they could probably teach me a thing or two about social media. I got a Facebook account for the first time ever in December of 2015. So I could become the administrator for the GFM page. I didn't even have a Facebook account, but I I think I'm figuring it out. So, all right. Well, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to say before I let you go? Not here. I think we've covered it all, Andrew. It's really great talking to you. You know, if you're ever in St. Louis, you got to look us up. I definitely will. I would love to St. Louis or maybe to conference sometime. Where are you? I'm in Maine. Oh. So I'm I'm all the way up in the, the northeast right. corner. I forget oh. that a, I forget that I a always, magazine can move. I always forget. <laughs> I always think you're like over here. I thought you were in Lawrence. I don't know why I know I it's because of Lynn. No, the, well, actually, the magazine is still printed in Kansas, the, the printer that she'd had for years. But there was a point. I actually went out to the Midwest Growers Conference, rented a box truck, put all the growing for market stuff in the back of the box truck, and moved it up to my farm in Maine when I when I took it over from Lynn. So I'm up in the in the frozen north, but I will definitely look you guys up if I ever get to St. Louis. And if not, then maybe we'll run into each other at a conference or something. But thank you 
both so much for taking the time. It's been a great conversation, especially with, I know, your childcare plans and everything didn't work out today. So thank you so much. Really appreciate the conversation. I think our listeners will too. Thank you, Andrew. You thank take you, care. Andrew. Thanks for including us. We're so proud of the work you do. Take yeah, care thank now. you for continuing our yeah. legacy. Oh, thank yeah. you for thank you. taking it and launching it and making it better and bigger. New direction. New direction. Thank more you. Inclusive. Good work. Yeah, thank you. You're too kind. I'm just trying to be a good steward of what Lynn started. Yeah, take care now. Okay, bye, Andrew. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Growing for Market podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider giving us a follow and a rating or a review. It really helps others find the podcast. For more tips and tricks from farmer to farmer, check out our magazine at growingformarket.com. Whether you're a commercial grower or just want to grow like one, subscribe to Growing for Market magazine for the nitty gritty of growing, marketing, and the business of market farming. We publish 10 issues per year with articles written by experienced farmers on topics ranging from tools and techniques to farm business operations and marketing. If you've been listening to the Growing for Market podcast and haven't yet checked out Growing for Market magazine, we've made a change so you can try the magazine for free. We've added a free month to the beginning of all first-time subscriptions. Try out the digital or paper magazine subscription for a month, and if it's not for you, cancel within 28 days and you'll never get billed. Even the most basic subscription gets you a year of the magazine plus 150 back issues from the last 15 years. With digital subscriptions starting at just $30 per year, head on over to growingformarket.com and subscribe today to benefit from over three decades of writing by farmers for farmers in Growing for Market magazine.